get started. Well, welcome everyone. Um, I'm your host, David Aponte, and we have here another episode on coffee sessions. And we have a very special guest today. We have uh, Ryan Dawson. I'm going to give him an introduction in a second. Um, but today's chat is going to be around answering the question, isn't MLOps just DevOps? And is there a difference between them? What's confusing about them? Uh, why aren't they the same? Um, so it's going to be a very fun chat. We have some great slides, some great content, and we're very much looking forward to what you guys think. So let's begin. Uh, I'm here with Ryan Dawson. Like I said, he is an engineer at Selden. He's working on Selden's MLOps tools. Uh, probably Selden's most famous tools are open source serving tool called Selden Core. And he loves to write articles. He's published one in particular that you guys should check out. It's called Why is DevOps for Machine Learning so Difficult? And we're going to talk about some of the themes from that article and answer that similar question. We're also going to ask people why they keep underestimating MLOps and mistaking it for just plain old Dev, uh, DevOps. Now, they're very similar, but there are some differences. So our question here is, how do we answer the, isn't that just DevOps objection? Now, Ryan, is there anything you want to add to that, that introduction? Uh, yeah, well, actually, first I should say thanks for having me. It's really a pleasure to be here. Uh, big fan of the coffee sessions. Uh, yeah. yeah. Yeah, so I think it can be tricky to explain uh, MLOps to colleagues and managers who are used to traditional software engineering and, and DevOps. Uh, it, it would be nice actually to be able to explain it to like a complete stranger or even to a grand. <laughs> right. <laughs> but we, we need to at least make it clear to other IT professionals and to stakeholders. Um, we have to answer questions like, isn't that just DevOps? Uh, and we need to answer that clearly. Otherwise, the challenges of MLOps are just going to continue to be underestimated. And those challenges might even be underestimated like a little bit by us as well as by others. Yeah. Uh, like there's kind of this old adage that, you know, maybe you don't fully understand something unless you can explain it to someone else. That's very um, true. And I think if we can't articulate what's special about MLOps, then um, that, you know, we, we run the risk of uh, like not fully appreciating what's so hard about it and what, what the key mm. challenges are going to be. Um, yeah. I think do you, a quick question. Do you, in general, do you think that the underestimation happens from less technical people, like think people, let's say, that are more involved in the business aspect, or is it both the technical and the non-technical that kind of don't really know how to define MLOps or even how, what, what's different uh, between that and, and, and DevOps? And funny enough, like uh, we had an episode a little while ago where we were thinking about the very question, what is MLOps? How do you define it? So I'm a technical person and I don't fully have a full grasp of uh, exactly the differences. I feel like if you ask a different person what that definition is, you're going to get a different answer. Hmm. Yeah, well, I, don't, I think there's different levels to how, why this is getting, um, why these challenges get uh, underestimated. I think um, partly there's these, you get these kind of siloed uh, functions in, in organizations. Uh, so you've got people from a traditional DevOps background that don't get exposed to all of the aspects of the, the machine learning uh, lifecycle. Um, yeah. So, so this, this stuff can then hit them like new when, when it does get, uh, land on the desk. Um, but then you also get other like differences within organizations. So like the people at more of a business kind of level will have a different focus uh, or approach. Yeah. 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 Uh, yeah. So there's that. Um, to, to me, MLOps, I think, is, is more like but whatever is necessary to make the whole ML build, deploy, monitor uh, lifecycle as smooth and as safe as, as possible. Yeah. yeah. And it's pretty I would say, yeah. 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 I, I would say basically just making ML, like getting, allowing you to just do ML instead of uh, focusing so much around all of these things, you know, like the quicker you can actually get to doing you know, machine learning and providing business value. That to me is what MLOps is, is all about. It's about making that, like you said, making that process smoother uh, because it can be very tricky. And I think that's a great transition into this idea that we, you know, we're all very familiar with MLOps, but I think we don't really quite know, or rather I think the better way to phrase is that we underestimate the challenges that come with that. You know, a lot of companies think that they can just build their own uh, MLOps function in no time with like maybe one engineer and a data scientist, but then little by little as things grow in complexity, it just balloons into this giant platform. Um, and so how did you learn about these challenges and you in particular, how did, how did you get into this space? Yeah, so I guess a little while back, I was working as a developer doing like Java web apps for banks. Uh, I had friends doing some AI stuff and I, I decided to learn more and I started doing some Coursera courses. 
Uh, and that gave me a good sense or much better sense of like some of the ML fundamentals uh, and really showed me how both how different ML is, but also how varied it is. Uh, I mean, it's applications like a, a search engine is like really different from you know, sentiment analysis on text. And yeah. that's really different yeah. from image classification. Um, so yeah, so I, I was surprised when I encountered people talking about ML and especially like building and running ML as though it was just like basically like the same as mainstream software. Uh, uh, it's this this assumption seems to come up quite a bit uh, and mm. seems to be like widespread. Um, I don't know, maybe especially for people who are like who are like really embedded in a mainstream software engineering background. I'm not really sure. Um, then then later, actually, it surprised me more that when I found that some data scientists can just assume that like DevOps people already know how to run ML in production. Uh, yeah. So I, yeah. 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 That one could sort of surprised me because I, I guess maybe people know that DevOps is quite sophisticated and that at least some companies are doing this stuff you know, well already. Um, yeah, yeah. But there's this chasm in the industry. And, and in, in, in fairness to, to anyone listening and thinking that they're very mm -hmm. similar, you know, there is a lot of overlap. You know, I, I do, yeah. and I do think personally that there is a huge benefit to treating machine learning as software, like as, a, as an engineering practice, an engineering discipline. There's a lot of value that can be brought to this kind of complex researchy sort of field um, when you think about productionizing it. It already, in my opinion, makes it better. But if you think that they're exactly the same, you mm. lose sight of the nuances between that, you know? And I think that could make it, like, I think the biggest issue that I have is that a, co a company will underestimate exactly how much work this takes. And as a result of that, we'll maybe waste time trying to build their own solution when it may not be the smartest move. Um, again, this comes up a lot in a lot of our chats, this buyer build option. But I think, yeah, it's important to understand that there, there's a lot of similarities there for sure. And many good practices that are learned from DevOps can apply to machine learning, um, but they're not exactly the same. And if you, don't, if you treat them the same, you may underestimate them and you may uh, waste time you know, trying to build something that is actually a lot trickier and requires a lot more nuance. Um, <clears throat> I want to, excuse me. Um, so there's all these big problems, right? Um, a lot of companies are coming up with different solutions to different problems in this space. In particular, what is Seldon contributing to these these uh, these solutions? Yeah, and actually, it's partly it's a really complicated space because at least I feel it's a complicated space because there's such a range of use cases, uh, and yeah. I, I think some use cases are like really very close to traditional DevOps, and then other ones uh, can be like quite far away. Um, uh, and, and I think that's part of why also we've got this really complicated landscape. Um, so I, I think the industry is slowly converging towards like good ways of running uh, machine learning projects. Uh, standards and conventions, hopefully, like are, are starting to uh, coalesce and come together. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's what kind of happened in the, in, in the DevOps space, I think. And hopefully MLOps is kind of going to follow along. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but right now, I, I think there's just lots of fields and subfields within MLOps and like different yeah. categories of tools. Uh, I, I think um, open source uh, collaboration will play a key role in like where those standards end up forming. Um, yeah, me and, too. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I think it's a, it's a real privilege to be at Selden and be part of that like open source landscape uh, and be working with all the other uh, MLOps open source tools and see where things go. Uh, so yeah. We, I, 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 so I just, I just want to say shout out to yeah. open source. Uh, it's changed my life. It's made me, uh, I think, uh, uh, allowed me to do so many of the things that I do now is because there's so many things out there that are free and that you could build on top of. And that changed the game. And I, I do agree that I think it's going to be through these sort of open source communities and platforms and tools that people little by little come to some sort of agreement on like best practices or the best way to do it. You know, there's a really interesting statistic I heard a little while ago that, you know, about 80 to 90% of machine learning projects actually never get to production, actually never get deployed, right, uh, for whatever reason. So presumably, we're a really long way from actually agree, uh, reaching these agreed standards in the field right now. Would you agree? Would you disagree? Yeah, it certainly does feel like we're quite a way off the agreed standards. Uh, yeah, 80 to 90%, I mean, it does sound quite scary, that number. Um, I, I suspect that it's also a bit more complicated than it sounds. Uh, at least some of it's got to be down to these MLOps uh, challenges, uh, especially challenges around data, I think. Uh, but I suspect there's other yeah. stuff happening too. Uh, some of it might also be down to like the way that companies are approaching machine learning projects. 
probably you get companies like trying to do stuff which they realize once they start the project they don't really have the data or it's not clean they've got like mm -hmm. um, privacy issues with the data um, also I, I i do think um i think it probably can be complicated to say well it, this this percentage of projects are not getting production i mean probably some data science projects particularly in the kind of more like data analysis type of space um they don't necessarily need, necessarily need to get to production for it to be valuable like you can still gain insights from the data and if you that's very that, true um very true but definitely there are there are, there are problems <laughs> uh, yeah yeah this is, actually so actually one way i think uh, we can think about how how far we are from standardization is to look at the mlops landscape diagram uh if i can share my screen yeah. okay. so for anyone listening ryan is about to put on a, uh, some slides so i'd advise you if you are listening on a podcast check out the video yeah awesome. so, so we have this one this is, is the cool diagram mlops landscape diagram uh Mm. Oh, it's, sorry, it's the LFAI um, landscape diagram. Uh, just trying to show so many these. options. <laughs> yeah, I mean the number of tools and the number of tools with, within that you've got all these different fields, and then you've got each the number of tools within each field. It's like oh my gosh. Yeah, I mean, it's, I, in one, know, on I, one I, hand, it's kind of great uh, because it, it it means that there's like all these things and options and value being added, uh, but on the other hand, like. Yeah, it's it's a difficult space to navigate, so it, it takes a lot to. Absolutely, I I feel I sometimes feel bad for you know like let's say someone that's an, a new engineer, a new data scientist, um, at maybe a younger company where they kind of have to wear a lot of hats and have to learn a lot of these different tools. Um, it can be very complicated. This, they, like you said, it's awesome that there's so many options to choose from, but it can also be a little overwhelming. What's the right way to do it? Which one works? You know, and, and you hear about this company doing it this way, another company doing it that way, um, you know, and, and it can be a little overwhelming. Why do you think that this whole confusing landscape has emerged? Why are there so many options? Yeah, well, I, I guess partly because there's there are problems and where there's problems, then there's value to be added. Uh, and, and each of these yep. tools is identified as a little space that and initially they can add that value. Um, and there's there's a whole range of different use cases for running machine learning in production, uh, and they vary quite a lot. Um, so, I, I guess like so, small companies running like a few simple models um, might not really need like a whole machine learning platform uh, approach, uh, and they can probably like stitch together something that works from some of the tools that are available. Uh, and actually, I think those are kind of use cases that will look more like normal DevOps. Um, Whereas bigger companies running like lots of models, the probably more that can be attracted to these like all-encompassing platform uh, offerings. Um, then there's lots of stuff that it's also kind of specific to particular use cases as well. Um, so like explainability, for example, um, mm -hmm. a, uh, like needing to be able to actually explain why a machine learning model has made the decisions that it's made. Uh, that comes up, especially in, in like what kind of compliance-heavy, like regulated environments. Uh, but in a lot of other environments, it's just not really a, a, a concern. Um, but also, I think it's just like it, this is new. Uh, you know, we, we, we've yeah, just, it is. We've not been doing it for that long. Uh, uh, and, yeah. and when when and in that kind of case, there's 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 more than one way to solve problems and. We just have to experiment and see which ways people like the most and which ones get adopted. And yep. Go yep. The That's literally my approach. Experimentation. Try this out. See if it works. Try something else. See if that works. It's very much an iterative process for me. Um, you know, and the, yeah, I, I think, yeah, that's a good, good point. So as you say, it's definitely understandable that, you know, people are going to be confused about MLOps right now. How can we help, you know, the MLAPS community? How can we help our colleagues? How can we help our managers, our customers, our clients? How can we help them better understand these problems? Uh, and, you know, most importantly, well, what I think is what I would like, you know, them to, to better understand is how can they grasp what MLAPS is all about? Yeah, that's true. So I guess I, I've been thinking a lot about how best to get this point across. And one approach I, I, I tried to I take is to, like, show the uh, the diagram from the Hidden technical debt in machine learning. Uh, Love that paper. Yeah, it's yeah. a great paper. Um, Love it. But uh, it, it, yeah, I mean, it's it's a really valuable uh, 
diagram uh, and the way it shows that like the, the ml code is this like one little tiny block and then you've got these huge blocks for uh data cleaning and prep and serving and monitoring and stuff uh and i think it deserves to be famous and it's effective uh I, and it gets that point across that ml code is not not just like the the only part or everything yeah. yeah yeah uh, yeah but i do find myself having to be careful with it because like without explaining it fully it tends to just make people think whoa like people end up reacting like, yeah, that's like big, scary problems. Um, <laughs> I think probably because people don't immediately recognize uh, what the things in the boxes are meant to be. So like having a box called like feature engineer, uh, feature extraction, uh, like it doesn't really communicate much to people who don't know what feature extraction is. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I guess I, I've been trying to think about like ways to make uh, to explain this 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 in a more uh, accessible way uh, that people can relate more to uh, concretely to their their own problems. Uh, yeah. yeah, so I think one one big takeaway from when I first saw this image and when I've shared it with other people is exactly that that, that machine learning code is only a small part of the whole equation, so to speak, right? Um, and it's not the most important part in some ways. It's like the heart of it, because that's really what your system is focused on. But there's so many other pieces that need to come into play in order for the solution to actually work. Uh, there's the, like, I'm, I'm reading for, the, for anyone who's uh, not looking at this, there's the configuration, there's a the data collection, uh, tools to analyze the process, like, uh, like you mentioned, feature extraction, managing the number of resources that you're using, verifying data, monitoring. I mean, there's a whole bunch of things that needs to happen in order for this to work in a production system. You know, and, and one thing I'm thinking about is maybe it would be really helpful if we start talking about what's the developer building journey look like? You know, what's that, what does that look like for, I guess, a typical DevOps, you know, like a project? And how does that differ from an ML, you know, ops project? Yeah. Um, so. Yeah, so but yeah, maybe we should like do this dive into that. Yeah, so I guess if we go on like an imaginary kind of development uh, journey, uh, so we can start with like a user story. Uh, yep. So love user stories. <laughs> so let's say we're building a calculator, uh, and our, our user story says we're going to want we're going to allow our users to put numerical operations into the screen, so they don't have to work out what the answers are. Um, nice. Okay. So we could write a Java program that would satisfy that story. Uh, Sure. Uh, and then we can compile that and distribute it, uh, probably as a binary or JAR file in Java terms. Yeah. yeah. Uh, uh, but this is 2020, so we're more likely to package the uh, code and run it as a web server. Uh, so the users yeah. will then interact with it via the browser. Uh, and most likely, we'll probably like Dockerize the web app uh, and run it on some cloud infrastructure. Probably, we're going to keep the code in Git. Uh, uh, and we'll push the Docker image through uh, a CI system like uh, Jenkins or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, so I think that those that Git Jenkins Docker cloud uh, Docker, flow is yeah. kind of uh, uh, pillars of this this imaginary dev journey. Yeah, I, I imagine that most software engineers are familiar with that flow: Git Jenkins Docker, maybe GitLab instead of Jenkins. But yeah, typical flow. Yeah, bamboo concourse. Yeah. But one thing that's remarkable, at least to me, about the CI systems is that they they, they follow quite common patterns that you can actually uh, you can move from one to the other, and there's a lot of similarities. Uh, yeah, uh, sort of uh, MLOps patterns uh, platforms are not quite like that yet, I think. Yeah, yeah. We'll see here for anyone looking. So we just went through a simple DevOps project, right? You know, you have some app, you build it, you deploy it in some way. But now let's take a look at what does a MLOps project look like? Yeah, so think about it like a machine learning build journey. Uh, I, I think this is more likely to start with some data and maybe a question. Uh, so it's quite yeah. a different way of starting a project in the first place. Mm -hmm. So let's say we've got data on employees uh, and their experience and skills and salaries. Uh, and we want to see whether we can use that to benchmark uh, salaries for other employees during a pay review. Uh, so let's assume the state is already available and clean, uh, even though that might actually be a pretty big assumption. Probably not. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, uh, but as assuming that, then maybe we can create a regression model that maps employee experience to pay, uh, mm -hmm. using scikit-learn, uh, something similar. Uh, so then we can train the model. 
Uh, and then it can be used to make predictions uh, for any given employee what the salary benchmark would be. Uh, unless we, we give our predictions to a, uh, on a particular set of employees to the business uh, and they're happy with that. Uh, so happy actually that they want to use it again for the next, uh, next review. Uh, and then I think our situation changes uh, because then what we want isn't just like a prediction, but really a kind of predict function. Uh, so what we, what we want then is to be able to uh, avoid having to rerun that training process every time the, the business yeah. has some new employees that they want to check. Um, and actually that problem would be magnified if then another department says they want predictions too. Uh, but, yeah. <laughs> That's a very realistic scenario, right? Like, oh, this is cool. Let's, I wanna, we want to apply it here at this part of the business too. Hmm. And one extra out complication on that is, well, like, what about the data that we use to train that, that model in the first place? So if we've managed to establish that it's applicable to one department, do we know it's applicable to another department? No. Yeah. We might actually yeah, need different data. Uh, but I mean, even if we, let's just assume that it is, let's assume that it does work for that department as well. Then our main problem, I think, becomes a problem of scaling. Uh, so it's how do we make all those predictions without having to keep manually retraining this model and burning ourselves out. Mm -hmm. um, so probably we're going to be interested in using the machine learning application inside a web app. Uh, so adding a REST or HTTP API around it, around the Python code, uh, and, and yeah, making that web application available. Uh, so we might naturally package it in a Docker container like we would with a traditional web app. Uh, and that's a valid and common approach, uh, but it's just one of the approaches in, in a sense in that it's, it's also quite common in machine learning space to package the model uh, uh, by serializing it using Python's uh, pickling uh, capabilities. Yeah, or joblib or something like that, yeah. Yeah. Um, so that so that has an advantage in that you can then distribute the model, the um, you know the Python variable that is a model, uh, separately from the, the the training data. You don't have to figure out how to separate the training data from the, the Docker image. Um, yeah, so that's that's quite common, I think, in the machine learning space, um, and that's the different a, a difference from uh, DevOps there. Um, Big difference, yeah. So if we, if we then load that model in, into a suitable Python web app, um, then we can serve predictions that way. Um, uh, actually that varies, like the way of doing this is gonna vary a little bit from framework to framework. Uh, so I've talked yeah. about that in yeah. kind of Python terms, but you also get machine learning uh, stuff that's like in R and other, other tools. Um, and that, but, and then there's other spaces uh, around this and uh, like using this diagram, using this kind of imaginary journey, we can then start to see how all these different MLOps tools fit in, I think. Because um, yeah. within the space of the data, you've got tools like S3 and Hadoop that are, are aimed at data storage and all the processing you have to do on the data. Then yeah. you've got the, the actual, the, the training of the, the model. Um, when, like when you move from beyond just doing that on the machine, the, the data scientist's laptop, then you've got specialized tools that are there to support that longer running training process. And then you've got tracking tools as well that track all the changes that you do on the data uh, as, as you're going through that preparation and um, training process. Yep, yep. And if you've got this problem of being able to make uh, predictions on a recurring cycle, uh, so if you've got the business keep coming back to you every like quarter or every year or month or whatever, uh, then yeah, you've got tools that are specialized on being able to do batch predictions. Yeah, yeah. Uh, as well as tools that are specialized in that REST API, um, wrapping it in a, a REST API space. Um, so that's real-time serving tools. Uh, actually, I, so I, I work on Selden, on Selden nice. Core. Um, though the, the Selden team also collaborates on another tool, KF Serving, which uh, I remember you, uh, yeah. you spoke about on a previous uh, one of these sessions. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, so, yeah, and both of these part of the Kubeflow ecosystem. Yeah, I'm just, just for anyone who uh, can't see, 
there's a lot going on in this space. You know, the, it is quite different from just your traditional software. Uh, like he mentioned, you know, the data itself is is one component. The training is another component. Tracking is another component. The frameworks that you use to develop these models, uh, how do you serve it? How do you deploy it? Uh, how do you package it? How do you do batch jobs? There's so many little things that you need now need to consider. And I think this is a great segue into um, what the key differences are between DevOps and MLOps. What, what makes them so different? Yeah, so I guess, uh, well, I guess extrapolating from what we just uh, talked through, I, I guess it's that that, that training um, in the training process is the data and the code together that, that drives the, the fitting that's, that's going to result in a model. Because um, I, I, I feel like that's kind of fundament, the fundamental differences. Really, it really stems from what machine learning is versus what programming is. In that with programming, yeah. you're responding to inputs um, uh, and giving outputs based on explicit rules. But with machine learning, you're, you're really capturing rules indirectly uh, from data. Yeah. So you're taking, you extract yeah. patterns from the data. Uh, and and, and the randomness that's involved in that makes it trickier. You know, it's, there's, it's stochastic. It's not this fully deterministic process, which I think, like you said, is a huge difference between uh, traditional software and machine learning systems. Uh, that randomness makes it tricky, you know, because now it's not like, you know, this, this code that you can compile and always get the same results every time. They may be a little bit different, you know, there may be different nuances that you capture on this data set. Um, so yeah, that's a big difference. Yeah, yeah, that certainly feeds into the whole reproducibility problem for, for machine learning. Um, which maybe we uh, we'll probably come back to that. Um, but yeah, but I guess also the, the, the data is, is a challenge in itself, because if it's, if it's like really large data that we're talking about, then that means long running jobs. Uh, but it also means you've got something that's part of your build that's like a key part of being able to build this model and being able to reproduce building the model and it's too big to fit in git like you know as soon as you get into the gigabyte space yeah. you're not you're not going to be keeping that yeah. Git. um easily you know neural network yeah it's easy to have a big big fat model <laughs> okay so plus the 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 thing that you're, you're training is a, is a model and, and that's that's somewhat different from an executable i mean it's similar but it's it's different so you get this this thing of like being able to uh, of pickling or serializing job loop whatever you know serializing the model somehow a different kind of way of uh, packaging. Um, plus, yeah, you get also interesting use cases about the way that the the patterns get applied to new data. Uh, so, when you, you made you made on like great job training a model fits really well against the data that you've been supplied against uh, you, you supplied with in the beginning, looks like it's going to be great. But then when it goes live, you might have problems with it because the live data is actually different. Um, <clears throat> Or yeah. even more tricky as well, actually it works great against the live data to begin with, but then the live data distribution starts changing over time. Mm -hmm. uh, yeah, yeah. So I, I think particularly, I, I, one example, I, I kind of, I'm sort of a made up example, but like maybe in the, like the fashion industry. So if you've like got a model that's like recommending uh, clothes on an e-commerce site uh, and you trained it on data from the summer, then it's like pitching t-shirts at people uh, and they, but it, in, when, yeah. When it, yeah, when you come to the winter, it's you know it's, it's still pushing t-shirts, and people want to be on buying coats. Yeah. Mm -hmm. uh, That's concept drift right there. <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. This is great. I think yeah, like to to summarize some of those key points that you know the training part is different. Uh, there's lots of data, long running jobs. Um, you know you have to deal with timeout issues there. Maybe there's a lot of things that you need to worry about. There's the, the, the difference between a model itself. It's not like you said, it's not quite an executable. Um, things like retraining may be necessary. You know, I don't know how often you may need to recompile your code unless you're actually changing it. But let's say you're not changing the code. Uh, but in a model, you know, you may need to retrain that same model on that same data, uh, but maybe learning new weights or whatever it is. So yeah, there's definitely some big differences. And um, you have so I would love to now kind of segue into Selden a little bit. I would love to learn a little bit more about this deployment part in particular because you work, you work for them, and uh, I'm sure you kind of think about this, you know, this deployment and the ML serving component a lot. Yeah, we can talk. Uh, machine learning like serving tool, 
I think actually, I think in a way, serving is kind of a nice area to work on because it's, I think it's one of the more e the easier to grasp from a traditional DevOps uh, perspective. Uh, yeah. But actually, I, yeah. I think what people struggle with, uh, at least partly what has got me interested in, is I, I feel like people struggle to place serving within the wider landscape and understand why you do it that way. Um, but yeah, anyway, should I explain the concept behind Selden? Uh, so, or Selden Core. So it's aimed at, uh, in particular, at serving on Kubernetes. Uh, and models are served by creating a Kubernetes custom resource. Um, so that's uh, a manifest, uh, a, a, like typically written in YAML. Um, and we just, it's designed to try and make it as simple as possible to just plug in uh, a URI to say a storage bucket or a path. Yep. Here's my artifact. Yeah. 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 Say, so here's my serialized model. Please serve it. Uh, so at a minimum, you can put in just that path to a, a, a model. Um, uh, and also, you need to specify which toolkit it was built with. Uh, so it's, if it's an sklearn model, then someone needs to know it's an sklearn model. <clears throat> uh, this is a very, like, KF Serving has a very similar kind of manifest. Uh, then you submit that to Kubernetes. Uh, and Kubernetes and the serving solution together will ensure that all the lower level Kubernetes resources necessary to expose an API and serve the models, HTTP traffic. That's all just created in the background. Uh, yeah, so it's trying to make that interface to a serving as uh, simple as possible. Uh, there's also a Docker option if it's not if you're not going the kind of serialized model route. Um, yeah, uh, but then uh, there's also um, like interfaces then to other parts of the MLOps journey. Really. Yeah. How does it fit into that kind of uh, bigger picture? Yeah. You can also add more value around the the story by by knowing that serving is part of that. So we can try and do integrations yeah. to stuff like monitoring. I love this because, you know, I, I use Kubernetes at least like every day um, and, uh, you know, writing up manifests are just a part of the job. So this is very familiar for me. So for anyone who's using Kubernetes, you just simply specify the, the kind, let's say in particular for this one, this example, it's a seldom deployment. If you're using a traditional, you know, Kubernetes the uh, API, it could be a pod or a job or a deployment. So it's very similar in that regard. It's just a different type of Kubernetes resource. Uh, the spec, you know, is very similar to a pod and you point to a training artifact and then from the command line do kubectl uh, apply dash f and boom, you're up and running. So it's, if for anyone who's typically, you know, using uh, Kubernetes, it, it should be uh, pretty, you know, like the, the learning curve shouldn't be that bad. Uh, because it's very similar to the way that you would deploy something on a Kubernetes uh, cluster. Yeah, and as I said, I think the main challenges are more about figuring out where, how to navigate the overall landscape and how to deal with your particular use case within that landscape and figure out which tools that uh, you really need. Um, mm -hmm. So I, I, yeah, I think I, I certainly I encounter this talking to um, people who are like evaluating Selden or looking at Selden. Uh, it's just the, the MLOps landscape has this uh, confusing range of options. Um, Lots of options. You got <laughs> governance that you got to think about. You got real-time serving. You got offline predictions. Should we build? Should we buy? You know, there's all sorts of questions that come up in this space. And uh, it can be very tricky to navigate. And even just within the idea of serving. So I like mostly talk about serving as a, as a real-time serving uh, thing. but. That's not the only use case. There's also these like offline kind of batch predictions. Uh, actually, well, yeah, I guess you guys uh, you did a great session on uh, on uh, just recently on the different types of, of serving. Uh, serving, yeah. And it's funny right now we're actually kind of doing a combination of like real time batch jobs, where uh, from a live you know a live endpoint where we're actually doing a batch job underneath. So you can combine these things, you know, you can have real, like, I mean, depends upon, you know, your use case, but it, it's, yeah, that, that real-time serving uh, approaches to me, I think one of the most common ones. And that's typically how a lot of people think of deploying a machine learning model as, you know, some sort of endpoint that you can reach. Yeah. Um, so yes, yeah, so maybe we can go into some of the interesting examples of like how serving then interacts with other, um, at least yeah, how, how real-time serving uh, interacts with other stages of the workflow. Uh, so I think one, one example could be like a, a rollout metrics example, because um, uh, 
to me, the rollout and monitoring phases of the workflow are, are, are quite linked. Mm -hmm. So let's say we've got an online store. Uh, and with e-commerce, it's quite a common way to roll out new models, or these new versions of a model, is to do an A-B test. Uh, yep. So that means that you, you take a, the live version, keep that running, it's already running, and that's called the control. But then you run other versions alongside it, say called version A and version B. Uh, so then once you're doing that, then you're running these three versions of the model in parallel. Each of them is trained a little bit differently, uh, and you're, you're basically trying to see which one gives you the best results. Uh, so you can you can achieve that by splitting the traffic between the versions, uh, and you, you like send most of the traffic to the control to minimize the risk, because you know that model is already like new reasonable results. Uh, then uh, you give this like a smaller subset of the traffic to, to A and to B. Um, uh, and you run that for like a little while until you've got a statistically significant sample that you can use to make a judgment. Um, but making that, that process of then making a judgment is, is probably where some of the complexity uh, comes in. So stuff like the traffic splitting, like that, uh, so Selden has support to be able to do that automatically. And uh, so there's KF serving and um, some other, uh, like that's this way for real-time serving solutions to integrate to the Kubernetes ingress, uh, the, like the external endpoint mm -hmm, to mm -hmm. Kubernetes. Um, but yeah, when you hit that point of, well, how am I going to make the decision um, about which model to promote, that, that can get quite complicated. It's kind of more, well, sometimes it's not so complicated, but sometimes it's more so sensitive to the use case. Mm -hmm. So let's say that variation A has the highest conversion rate. Uh, so the high proportion of uh, its recommendations are leading to sales. Uh, and, and that, I mean, that's a really useful metric. Uh, in some cases, it might be enough to, for us to, like the business to then say, okay, we want variation A, and you might be able to automate that, um, that, that upgrade. Um, but it's not necessarily the only metric. Uh, so it might be that model A is actually recommending like quite controversial products. Uh, so some customers really like the recommendations and they just buy straight away. Uh, but then there's other customers that are actually really put off by these recommendations and mm. they, they, they leave the website when they see them. They might even stop coming back because of the, these recommendations. Uh, yeah, so I guess basically what this, this is trade-offs to consider around, uh, uh, that, around how you use those monitoring and rollout tools uh, in particular use cases. So there's like, in, in, in my mind, when I think about this sort of stuff, there's like two aspects of it. There's the engineering component where you need the ability to basically distribute traffic in a smart way and an efficient way. Uh, you know, you need to do things like load balancing, uh, routing, all that stuff. But then there's also the scientific aspect where it's like, all right, how do I go about making a decision based off this data? You mentioned things like statistical significance. Uh, you mentioned things like A-B tests. So there's, you know, I actually recently read this really cool article by uh, the Stitch Fix blog, I think they're called uh, multi-multi-threaded. Yeah, that's that's what it's called, multi-threaded. And they had a whole article recently about online experimentation. And there's all sorts of ways to do this. You know, uh, you, you could do multi-arm multi-arm bandits. Uh, I mean, there's there's not like heuristics that you can use. Um, but it's it's like again, it's like I said, it's a mixture of these two things, right? There's this sort of scientific aspect where it's not just as simple as software where I'm choosing this or that. Um, but then there's also the software aspect where now you need to think about this application handling different types of traffic, uh, making sure that the right, the right app gets the right traffic that you can um, monitor that, that you can roll back if you need to. There's all sorts of components of that. So it's even this in and of itself can be complicated, right? It's, this is not so straightforward. Yeah, but then you also get other use cases where you don't need to do this and you can just, you know, you, you test it in a test environment and if it looks good, then you promote it. it. Uh, yeah, I guess. Um, it's, it's interesting, the variety of the, the landscape, I think. Um, uh, yeah, and maybe we can see a bit more of that variety by like talking about some of the other kinds of use case that you, you hit uh, or one can yeah. hit. Uh, yes, so in particular, um, some of the kind of use cases that we see come up sometimes, so like if the uh, requests that are coming to the model, like they can sometimes be like too messy to uh, put feed them into the model directly. So you might actually need a pre-processing step. Uh, 
So that happens uh, in particular, I think actually is, is like really common with uh, text processing. Because um, with text processing, often the, the raw data needs to be transformed uh, before you can train the model, before it's like in the right form for the, yeah. the training process. Yeah, uh, or like images or something like that. Yeah, actually to transform that's it into a machine readable way. Yeah, yeah. Um, so that's, uh, but and, and if you have to do that transformation on the training stage, then probably you're gonna have to do it at the surfing stage as well, because that's the raw form of the, yeah. of the data. Um, so, yeah, so I guess one way you, you can handle that is like if you're running a web app, probably you've got some sort of consumer that's making the calls. So you could like basically tell them to do it, uh, to make those transformations. Uh, but that's not very nice. Uh, and like most likely they're not gonna know how to do that. Um, mm -hmm. So more likely you're gonna have to write the code that's, that's gonna be able to do that transformation. And probably you've already got it because you've done the training stage. Yeah, exactly. That's a great point. If you, you've already done this at training time, now the, the tricky part is also keeping it consistent with what you do at inference time. Yeah. Uh, yeah, so so with, with Seldom, we've got this idea of an inference graph. Uh, so the idea is that you can then plug that code into another Docker container um, uh, and then use that that same code in uh, as, as like a step in the pipeline. Uh, so you've got this pipe, a serving pipeline where it goes uh, from uh, like basically in the Kubernetes manifest, you say, do this, then do that and do that. And the uh, the initial request will go through that pipeline and each step might then like, do a transformation on it before it gets to the model. And then the, the response of the model gets fed back to the the um, you know, the original um, the, the consumer. Is this, uh, and is this if for, for Selding, is it always a, a directed acyclical graph, meaning it's not like you can't go, uh, it, it only goes in one direction? Uh, it, it, is that how this uh, also works as well? Yeah, it is a directed acyclical graph, um, but it, it does support uh, branches. Um, and actually, okay. there is a range of use cases. Uh, I don't have the diagram here, but the, yeah, we, we can do like support multi-armed bandits, uh, for example. Uh, so you can have a, nice. a component in the middle that's, uh, um, has that's running an algorithm that uses to use it, runs that algorithm to decide between variations of the model. Um, so a particular request could be routed to a particular variation of the model, to, you know, depending on the algorithm. Um, so yeah. and and then under the hood, is this pipeline using Argo or is Selden using something different? Sorry, by the way, sorry if I if mm -hmm. I should know these things. Oh no no uh, yeah no, so Selden has uh, basically an orchestrator component under the under the hood. So when you submit the Kubernetes manifest, you, it, one of the, one of the Kubernetes, as part of the Kubernetes uh, pod that gets created, you'll get a orchestrator that uh, is able to orchestrate the requests. Um, it's one of the differences between uh, Seldom and KF Serving that right now, um, KF Serving doesn't have an orchestrator. Uh, so KF Serving can support yeah. uh, pre and post processing um, transformations. Uh, so you can have a sort of uh, minimal pipeline in that sense. Uh, but without the service yeah, orchestrator, a... you can't have more advanced use cases like a multi band. Yeah, exactly. You need something else like uh, Airflow or Argo, or if you want to use Kubeflow pipelines, you need something more complicated. But yeah, you mentioned that KF Serving has this pre-processing method that you can overwrite and a post-processing method, uh, post method that you can overwrite. Um, and it's perfect for these sort of use cases where you want to, you don't want the user to have to worry about that. They make a request and it does everything, whether it's like you say, you have a question and maybe you have like a not like a, a chat bot or something like that. It just takes raw text. It needs to convert that raw text into a vector that ultimately can be consumed by the model. Uh, then afterwards, maybe you need to post-process it and do all of these things. And yeah, all of this needs to happen with low latency, right? We need this to happen in real time typically. So it's, I think that's where it gets a little bit complicated is doing all of this processing, these transformations in real time. Hmm. Yeah, yeah. So it's, it's very, it's like really interesting being part of the discussions around like, for both Selden and KF Serving because the, the projects are like really close together and uh, uh, have slightly, but like slightly different architectures, but with similarities as well. So you, you get to explore these, uh, these challenges and the, the differences. Yeah. 
So we've covered a, we've covered a lot of ground. Yeah, I was I was just about to ask you actually about this. Yeah, I was going to say we we've covered a lot of ground on you know how MLOps is different from DevOps. We've even gone through some example user stories, right? We've talked a little bit about some of the specifics around deployment, uh, but there's some concepts that we brought up, uh, and I think we should probably elaborate a little bit more on. One of them in particular is that next slide, concept drift. This is a, a very common term that I hear people mentioning here and there. Uh, let's talk about that. What is concept drift? Yeah, super interesting. Uh, so I think concept drift, like, or at least I think it's when when the whole uh, data distribution um, it is different from the training data. And, and, Maybe if it started out that it was the same as the distribution was similar to the training data, but then it shifts over time. Um, <clears throat> so actually, I gave the, an example before about the uh, uh, fashion the, like website a, or something like that. Yeah, fashion website where you've like trained it in data in the summer and then you get to the winter and it's still pitching t-shirts to people. Um, so yeah, this is an interesting uh, problem in, in the, the kind of. Uh, MLOps space, uh, and one of the ones—it's one of the problems we're working on, uh, have been working on at Selden. So we've got a, an example to as a way of dealing with this, where you can train a component that knows the distribution of the training data, and we have a way of asynchronously feeding all of the live requests to that that component. Um, it yeah, so it's it's important to do that asynchronously, so you don't slow down the the main uh, predict yeah. flow. Yeah, uh, but yeah, and basically yeah, that component can then keep a watch and it can check. Well, is this is this data still in the same distribution as what I was expecting? Wow. And then you I just want to slow, slow down real quick. So you're saying yep. that, and this is with Selden in particular. Yep. Yeah. There's a, so, uh, an example in the Selden core. So there's uh, a a component that checks your training distribution in real time when a request is made. Takes your uh, I guess. Yeah, it checks whether or not it's or it compares it to that training distribution hmm. and can trigger a retraining job when it detects some concept drift. Uh, yeah, well, so the, the triggering would be something that would need to be set up because that's that's then like an ah, interface, okay, okay. that's an interface to the uh, like the training platform. Um, and yeah, they can gotcha, be arranged okay. different training platforms and so on. Uh, but also the component uh, we have a, like we have an example for how to build that and it, there's a library um, called Alibi detect, uh, alibi, and, okay. yeah. So w within the uh, kind of alibi suite, there's this uh, tool to be able to build a concept drift detector off your data. Uh, yeah. That sounds super awesome. I might want to play around and try that myself. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So, so this actually, is a big one. We have we got concept drift. Go ahead. Sorry. Yeah. So there's another thing actually within the outlier uh, or within the alibi uh, detect suite, which is like uh, outlier detection. Um, cool. uh, and this is another kind of related use case where the, the data may not quite fit with what you're expecting from the training data, uh, where there's just like one data point that's significantly outside of the training distribution, uh, even though everything else does fall naturally within training distribution. Um, and that can be a pain because then uh, you, you'll get, you can get really bad quality predictions on those uh, outlier data points. And even if it's say a classifier that gives a, its output as a probability, uh, you, you might hope that it was going to give a low probability, like a low confidence about uh, an, an outlier point, but that's not necessarily the case. It can actually be overconfident and give like really high probability. Oh, yeah. For data yeah. This game it's a uh, super confident, but super wrong. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. So this, so yeah, so the, basically, um, there's a way of applying this the same idea that we we're talking about to, with alibi detects and building a, a, a detector component. Uh, so there's also nice. a, a way of building an outlier de detection component. And I'm, assu I'm assuming uh, that it's similar, the mechanism underneath it is similar to the concept drift detector where you have to uh, get the, the distribution of the data. So there, I don't know, some histogram or something or some sort of way to actually measure the, the distribution right now. So I'm assuming that both of them have that same sort of operation underneath. Yeah, there's definitely a similar. relationship. Uh, yeah, really, I think we would need to get one of the alibi uh, guys on who can give you like much deeper yeah. insight. Alibi uh, guys, we'd love to have you on. Yeah. Uh, they're doing some super interesting stuff. Uh, so actually another thing they, right. they're doing is like a way of detecting adversarial um, examples for machine learning. 
so that that's where like there's a it's not just that your data is changed by accidental means, but actually somebody's deliberately come up with a, a data point mm. in order to trick your model. So uh, just for clarification, uh, an adversarial attack is like a hacker or something, someone trying to be malicious and uh, do some harm to your, to your machine learning system. Is that, am I understanding that correctly? Yep. Yeah, that's definitely, so the way, at least the, the way, one way that I think about this is when those examples that you hear about where like people trick face recognition systems by getting a mask uh, printed and then put the mask up and then, yeah. Yeah, then it thinks you're yeah. someone that you're not. <laughs> uh, yeah, so the, but then there's other, like more kind of humdrum examples within the alibi uh, um, examples. There's uh, one based on the kind of uh, MNIST where you've got a, you can uh, manipulate the, the data around to the number seven to put like a little line underneath the, the big line of the seven. And then it looks a little bit like a three. Um, and, and because the because uh, the model has picked up on that pattern, that the line in the middle means a three, then it thinks it's a three, even though visually it still looks like seven to the human eye. That's really cool. Um, yeah, so actually, so the other thing that, uh, um, uh, like another interesting challenge around this is, uh, is where you've got these more kind of high compliance use cases. So we talked about very little bit earlier, I think, about explainability. Um, mm -hmm. And uh, ex explainability, I think, is, is really interesting. Partly, is it's interesting as a data science problem because uh, that can be a data science problem in itself to understand, to come up with a way to explain what the model's yeah. doing, why it's making the predictions. Yeah. Uh, but it also has MLOps challenges around it. Uh, so if, if you're making real-time predictions and you might then later need to be able to explain why you made those predictions, then you've got the challenge of, well, you need to have either recorded what the predictions were and, and what the prediction was for, you know, what was the request and what was the response. Yeah, and if yeah. you do it that way, then you also need to then be able to tie the explainer, you know, you know hook in an explainer that you can feed that, uh, that data into or you, or you'd have to like you can generate the explanations like at the same time that you you do the real time predictions, and then you have them all stored uh, in the background, waiting for somebody to come along and ask for the explanation. Uh, yeah, yeah. So there's these interesting. Um, you have uh, these things like so. Basically, it's anything that allows us to answer the question of what went wrong and why. Uh, but you, you mentioned. You know, this is, I mean, I'm, I'm sure this is something that data scientists deal with regularly, but doing this um, in a deployment, right, in a real time setting, right, live, while this is actually out, you know, uh, to the users, you want to know why is it doing what it's doing. Um, and to trace that and to kind of keep that in sync with all the requests that are being made, the responses that are given can be a bit tricky. So you need a way, like you said, to have them very close together, if not together. Yeah, so actually one way we're doing it is to have like a space within the actual serving manifest that says this is the explainer. Um, and oh, then, cool. Yeah. So it's I kind of a that. similar. So the, mm -hmm. A similar, no, no, so I was just yeah. going to say, yeah, it's, it's, uh, no, sorry, I, 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 I <laughs> didn't cool. mean to interrupt. <laughs> yeah, so a similar concept to what we're doing with the, like the outlier detection and the um, concept drift detection. So, so yeah, you, nice. find it, you, you need to train something at the same time as you train the model, but then you can plug it into the serving solution. Uh, so that it's it's a, this um, extra component that sits together with the model uh, and allows you to do extra t extra things and get extra value out of the model uh, in, in, in real time in, in the serving Love uh, situation. So we, we've covered, again, we, we've covered a lot of ground. We've, we've recently, now we just talked about explainability. We talked about the inner contract drift, outlier detection, um, this is, these are all very important concepts. And again, it goes back to this, this navigating MLOps question where you have this complicated space. You have the governance, you have real-time serving, online, offline prediction, whether we should build or buy. And I think we've made a case, a good case, that it's not DevOps. There's, uh, you know, some different, there's some big differences between them. Um, I think now is a good time to wrap this up and think about what advice can we offer, and particularly you, Ryan, since you've been working in this space, what can you offer um, to people who are new to this stuff, people who are just getting into this space? Maybe they're 
you know, a project manager for a small data science team, maybe they're a data scientist, maybe you're an ML engineer, but you have some say in building your product. Um, I think it's important to know, you know, the complexity that's involved with that so you can make a good decision. Um, so what can we offer them, especially also to the people who come from a very traditional DevOps team um, that are now getting all these ML apps things thrown at them? What are some pieces of advice that we can offer them, some takeaways? Yeah, it's always tricky to give uh, advice within the, uh, the software world because um, people kind of want us, you know, a recommendation like do this and you'll be fine. Um, but but yeah. good, good teachers don't do that though. Yeah, good teachers <laughs> don't give you the answers. Good teachers give you a framework to work with and allow you to, uh, you know, get get there on your own. So I, 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 I'm sure that a lot of people want to do this, do that, but it's, it's not that simple, you know, mm -hmm. and I think you're going to articulate that, sorry. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I think, um, yeah, I guess uh, maybe I'd start with saying like tread carefully because um, there's this range of use cases and you need to figure out which, which where your use case fits within that space. Because um, it's quite a, as we've seen, it's kind of a complicated landscape. Um, so I, I think it's probably a good uh, rule of thumb to like just start by trying to understand your particular use case, like figure out everything you can about that. Um, Those user stories, you know, what do you actually need to do? Yeah, yes, exactly. Do some and do some research on your options. Like, try to figure out a little bit about the landscape. I mean, obviously, try and avoid getting completely lost in the the whole thing. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but I guess you can learn. You you can apply what having learned a bit about your use case, you can then think, like kind of go sniffing around the landscape and be like, okay, maybe that's all. That might be might be relevant. Yeah, I do have a real-time serving use case. Maybe I should look at uh, you know, one of these real-time serving tools. Um, yeah, and I think it's uh, important to, or like, I guess we've talked quite a bit about some of the advanced stuff. Um, mm -hmm. like, as, but as, as I mentioned before, like stuff like explainability is not necessarily something you need in every case. Um, and there's a more advanced problem to, to solve. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I guess it's uh, I think it's important to try to figure out what do you what do you need what do you, what do you need to sort of uh, meet the minimum criteria of your use case. Uh, yeah, and what things I think this is there. this is very like I, I think about this as a general problem solving approach. You need to first frame the problem well. You need to know the problem, and uh, I'm just you know here's the little, little teacher coming out of me, but. Uh, it's it's often you can learn a lot from the problem itself, studying the problem, you know, and and uh, expressing it in different ways. And in, in in many cases, that's one of the, the 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 first steps you should do before you just start building and iterating on something. Although maybe you could do those things simultaneously, it's so important to know what exactly what problem am I trying to solve, uh, and and knowing that well enough, you know, you could say knowing your users, what do they actually need, what are some of those pain points, how can you alleviate that. Uh, is do I need an entire platform for that or can I just use this, you know, do I need this feature or maybe I can just use that. It's really spending a good amount of time knowing, um, you know, what exactly you need to do rather than being, you know, kind of caught up in the hype of wanting using the latest and greatest tools. Uh, like you said, they may not be necessary and it's not always easy to implement and to, you know, to, to have. There's a lot of things that may need to be in place. So I think it's an important lesson to, like you said, tread carefully first. Think about your problem. What do you need to do? Get to know what are the options that are, you know, are relevant to your your problem, and then start thinking about a solution. Yeah. So I guess I've been thinking in particular about whether there's any like advice that can be used to help people in that situation. How do they go about scoping that, that project for them, mm -hmm. themselves? Uh, and I was thinking about if there's a way to like come up with a list of hey, here's some really good questions you could ask uh, like what, during that process. These are great questions, yes. Scoping a project. Uh, so yeah, I guess we just read out some of these questions, maybe. Yeah, you want me? I, I could do that. So here is uh, Ryan came up with a set of really good questions that I think you should ask yourself. Uh, I've actually uh, taken these down and put it in a Word doc so I could use them for my other projects. But uh, some basic questions that maybe you already ask yourself, but it's good to lay them out explicitly. So for example. Do we have the data and is it clean? How, how and how often will we get new iterations of the data and will it be clean? Do we need a training platform? And does it need to be linked to some sort of continuous integration? Uh, what frameworks are being used and what's the easiest way to serve that, right? We just talked about how there's a lot of different ways to kind of do the same thing. Does it look like a real-time serving use case? Do you need things in real time? Do you need low latency? Or can you do this offline in a batch? 
what about the format of the prediction request? Is it going to be similar to what it was trained on? How do you deal with those differences when they do happen? What about the data? Can it vary? Can it shift? Is it is it uh, subject to seasonal trends? Like you know this example of a, a fashion website. Does do seasons matter? Does time matter? What about online learning? Do you need to learn things on the fly? What about the need to retrain a model due to data changes? How do you trigger that job? When do you do that? How do you go about doing that? What about outliers? What about those you know this one random customer that shows up in your distribution that messes up your model? How do you deal with that? Uh, what what other you know what outliers cause the problem and you know something as, as well as can we explain this prediction uh, do we need explainability and I think you have some more on the the next slide yeah I, and these these um, I, I guess I'm thinking at the moment of particularly on a project level like if you just got one model or one set of, uh, like a, a like connected models in a particular use case. Um, then yeah, like you might get lucky and be like, go through this listing. You know, like, actually, I don't need most of that stuff. Uh, yeah, or you might go through it and be like, oh, I need quite a lot of that stuff. No, <laughs> man, I need that. I need that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but then I guess you've also got these more kind of platform use cases, uh, where yeah. you've you, you know you're more like a, in a kind of platform team, and you want Newsbrider provides a service to a whole range of other teams within the company. Uh, then you got this challenge of like figuring out what a whole range of use cases are. You don't just need to figure out like about one particular use case. Uh, you, you you need to kind of get a general sense of what the range of the use cases are in the company. Um, uh, and you, you also probably then want to be looking into like who's responsible for deployment uh, and what skills do, do they have. Um, particularly because I guess you, you're now you're probably going to be in a build versus buy um, situation. Uh, so you, you're going to be evaluating some of the other like the platforms on the market uh, or deciding whether there are tools that you might be able to stitch together and, and build your own kind of uh, in-house platform to meet your needs. And if you are going to pick tools, then maybe you, you're going to be looking at what the team you already have is familiar with uh, and what would they be, what would your users be comfortable with using? Yeah, it's a very important point, right? You got to think about the people that are actually building this stuff too. You know, do, are you going to force them to learn something entirely new, which is not uncommon, or maybe go with something that's fairly familiar to them? Yeah. And then you've also got like budgetary constraints, like you know, the hard numbers uh, are going to be a big uh, factor in this as well. Like, you probably don't want to spend a lot of time um, uh, evaluating a platform if, if you don't have the, the budget to be able to, uh, you know, purchase that that option. Um, yeah, yeah. Or or you may you may be able to go down a, a kind of build route, but then you, you might find that you, in order to do that, you have to be able to resource uh, from outside of your existing. Um, Teams skills, uh, and then that you know, then there's a budget comes back into it again. Budget's important, right? So it, it has to. I mean, it's ultimately this is about a business, right? Or typically, it's going to be about a business problem. So yeah, you do have to think about that. Um, so I guess um, I actually one other piece of advice, uh, you know, in addition to asking all these questions and trying to find out more, is uh, find people. You know, come to the uh, MLOps community. I think that's yeah. It, I mean, the 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 Slack uh, for the MLOps community has got really active, and there's like some uh, great conversations happening there now on um, all these different uh, topics under under MLOps, and there's a, a questions answered thread. Uh, so I think it's a it's a great place you can come to and just be like, hey, here's my problem. Here's what I'm trying to do. Uh, does anyone know about this space? Yeah, yeah. I think that that's a a very good piece of advice. Is is you know, seek help from the others in the community if possible. I mean, I, I know before I actually met the MLOps community, it wasn't exactly that easy to get plugged in. Like I, did, I personally don't have any friends who are ML engineers or data scientists. Most of my friends don't really know what I do. And I have, when I have to explain it, they're just like, uh, you do something computer, computery. But it's, it's so important to talk to other people who are dealing with the same problems. And it's not just to whine to each other. It's really, I'm learning a lot from other people. Um, and even like, you know, this, this, this coffee session is a, a great opportunity for that, where we can actually deep dive deep into a topic, learn a little bit about something new, talk about something that we're all dealing with. And I think that actually makes a big difference. You know, uh, you mentioned earlier that oftentimes people can be very siloed, teams can be very siloed. And I think in particular, this type of field with the people that it typically attracts, you know, there, it's a lot of people that work individually. But I think a huge part of the success of MLOps is collaboration, is the ability to work together on a team. 
um, because it's it's again it's it's more than just you know the tool and it's also more than just the model itself there's all these other things that need to be in place so i think that's a great piece of advice be open to learning more uh talking to people i would uh, very much encourage anyone who's listening to join the MLOps community. We have a very healthy and active uh, channel where we're talking about all sorts of issues. People post blogs that they write. Um, it's a great learning platform, and I would encourage anyone to, to join. And um, I think this is a great place to stop, Brian. I just want to thank you so much for taking out this time to chat with me. I feel like I've learned some things about Selden. Uh, Selden is something I'm definitely looking to play around with in my spare time. Um, I saw there was this cool blog article about setting up Argo, Polyaxon, and Selden. So I think I'm going to take a stab at that just to play around. Um, please reach out to Ryan. He is a, a very awesome person to talk to. Um, has a wealth of experience, especially working in this, in this open source space. Um, and we hope that you guys enjoy this episode. And we're looking forward to some of the feedback and comments that you guys give. Well, and then Ryan, is any, anything, uh, a closing statement? Okay, we can find me on the MLOps community Slack or on the Selden Slack. Uh, yeah, I'm very happy to, for people to get in touch with me. Uh, yeah. Um, oh yeah, I guess I, I, maybe I highlight a couple of resources that are quite useful that I found. There's a couple, if you search for awesome MLOps, uh, there's a GitHub list, uh, and there's another list called awesome production machine learning, uh, which has yeah. lots of different tools, uh, tools in different categories. Um, yeah, other than that guy, I guess. And the Selden community Slack too, yeah. Oh, yes, Selden community Slack. Yeah, you can definitely find me there. But, yeah, thanks for having me. It's been uh, a pleasure. Great to, to, to Yeah. Awesome. Well, thank you so much, guys. This is the end of our coffee session, and we hope you have a great rest of the evening or day, wherever you are. Take care.